0: You know, often I will look back upon my years as a hyperpreterist, and I'll think about how I got into such a crazy belief to start with and then what it took to get me out of it after seven years. And, you know, there are times when I think, man, I hate that that happened. I feel like I maybe wasted seven years of my life. But then again, there are times when I think, you know, well, God used all of that to get me to where I am today. And an important part of where I am today is in recognizing certain doctrines that, you know, apparently I did not think were that big of a deal back then, because if I did, I wouldn't have rejected them. But I've come to realize just how important and necessary and essential these doctrines really are. And so in a way, it's as if God let me fall down into this very weird, dark place so that I could see firsthand where you end up if certain doctrines are not embraced, if they're not emphasized. And there are a number of these doctrines I could talk about as it relates to hyperpreterism, But the one doctrine I want to focus uh, primarily on in this audio is the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, <clears throat> before we get to talking directly about resurrection, let me give you a little backstory here, some context, especially with respect to hyperpreterism. In theology, we study this thing called eschatology. And the word eschatology just comes from two Greek words, eschatos and logos. Logos means instruction, word, teaching. Eschatos means last or farthest. And so when you put these two words together, eschatology, what we are talking about then is the teaching or instruction or word concerning, or you could say the study of what is last or what is ultimate. So if God has a plan, which he does, the study of the eschaton deals with how that plan comes to its final end, to its goal. Now, some theologians will divide eschatology into two main parts, personal or individual eschatology and corporate or cosmic eschatology. Robert Raymond, for example, in his Systematic Theology remarks, The biblical material treating this locus of theology has traditionally encompassed both personal eventualities, uh, such as death, the state of the disembodied human soul, the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, and the individual's ultimate eternal destiny, and cosmic eventualities, such as the return of Christ, the liberation of creation from its bondage to decay, and the new heaven and new earth. While both of these areas are vital to a holistic biblical eschatology, one should not forget that personal eschatology, as it issues in the glorification of believers And the reprobation of unbelievers is really an aspect of the second area of eventualities which issues in the cosmic climax and consummation of God's eternal purpose for the world as we presently know it." So, in other words, though we may distinguish between the last things of our individual experience in contrast to the last things of what God will do with the whole of creation and the return of Christ, all of these things are working together and share in the importance and significance of bringing in the past what is ultimate in God's plan. And so uh, Raymond also says this, this area of eschatolo- uh, excuse me, this area of theology, which is eschatology, is the capstone of systematic theology, with every other locus of theology finding its resolution in it. And then uh, further, Raymond goes on to say, In fact, eschatology is so significant for New Testament thought in general that many contemporary New Testament theologians are prepared to argue that New Testament theology as a whole, as the theology of the, quote, age of fulfillment, unquote, is, if not eschatology per se, eschatologically oriented with respect to all of its major soteriological and ethical emphasis. And let me tell you, after the trip that I've been on with hyperpreterism, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those who would certainly argue the importance and the massive significance of eschatology. Now, two quick points that I can make from what we just read from Raymond. One, the first point is that though we may divide the last things into personal things like death, what happens to our soul after we die and resurrection of the body versus cosmic things like the return of Christ and the, the arrival of the new heavens and earth, we cannot divorce any of these core essential eschatological doctrines from our system. You can't just say, well, I'll affirm the return of Christ, but you can have the resurrection of the body stuff. You know, We can we leave that. We can't do that. The second point is that just as we can't pick and choose which eschatological doctrines we want and don't want within eschatology, which core doctrines. So we cannot divorce the study of eschatology as a whole from our system of theology, nor can we downplay it. This is why I take issue with statements like these, as you'll find on one popular website called Got Questions. There's an article there entitled, What is Christian Eschatology? And it says, eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen in the end times. Many treat eschatology as an area of theology to be avoided, which the site disagrees with because they'll go on to say that eschatology is not unimportant to a biblical worldview. But it's this next statement that I disagree with. They say, quote, of course, eschatology is not as crucial as Christology or soteriology, unquote. Well, I think that's dead wrong. As Raymond said, pointed out, Eschatology is the capstone of systematic theology, with every other locus of theology finding its resolution in it. All of these other ologies, when you study them together, should be guiding you down a certain path to a certain goal. And if you end up in a completely different place at the end, what that tells me is is that you've gone off track somewhere in the process. So just as an analogy, suppose you and I are at my house, and I get in my car, you get in your car, and our goal is to get to Orlando. Well, if in an hour from now, I'm in Orlando and you're almost in St. Petersburg, which is in the direct opposite way of Orlando, well, what does that tell me? Somewhere along the, the way, you took a wrong turn because you ended up in a totally different place. Right? Eschatology is as crucial as Christology and Soteriology because if your eschatology is severely messed up, what that tells me is that you've taken a wrong turn somewhere in your Christology and your soteriology. If your system ends up in a place where it denies the resurrection of the dead, for example, then let me tell you something. You've strayed off the path a long time ago. Somewhere in the beginning, somewhere in the middle, but somewhere you've gone off the path. And nothing displays that point better than hyper and its teaching on resurrection. So what is hyperpreterism? Simply put hyperpreterism or full preterism is the belief that the eschaton that is the last things of the bible were fulfilled by the end of the first century primarily through the events of the Roman Jewish war and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And the main uh, way or reason why they arrive at that conclusion is through what are often at uh, times called the quote unquote time text There are verses in the New Testament which seem to indicate on the surface that the eschaton was going to be fulfilled within their lifetimes, the lifetime of the apostles. And so around the end of 2001, 2002, I began to entertain this theory. Now, I had no idea that there were people out there who were already teaching it. The way I came about it was I kept hearing my friends tell me, that, hey, Jesus is coming soon. I especially heard that... uh, at the end of two thousand and one, remember when we were attacked nine eleven? You know, all my friends were like, "Oh, Jesus is coming soon," and I thought, "Well, doesn't the New Testament say He's coming soon?" It does, but that was written two thousand years ago. So, what do we mean by the word "soon"? If what we mean is Jesus is going to return in our lifetime, in fact, some of my friends thought He would return within a week <laughs> after nine eleven happened because they thought this was going to end up in World War three and all the rest of it. But if that's what we mean by "soon," Isn't that what the New Testament writers mean by soon? And if not, then, then are there two totally different meanings for the word soon? Now, <clears throat> the way some people get around this is to argue that, uh, that soon for us means something totally different than what it means for a New Testament writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God's soon is different from our soon. Well, I wasn't buying that, so I thought, what if what we mean by soon is exactly what the New Testament authors meant? and that they were expecting Jesus Christ to return in their lifetime. I mean, what's the harm in saying that? I'm honoring the Bible, right? It it says it. And so eventually I would come to embrace this idea that Jesus Christ had already returned, and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 signified that return. But now you have to do something with the general resurrection. Apparently resurrection is not what I thought it was, because the traditional Christian understanding of resurrection doesn't work in this theory. The traditional understanding is that the souls of all who have died will be reunited with their earthly, fleshly body, which has been raised from death and transformed or glorified. And the bodies of those who are alive when this happens just transform immediately without having going through the whole process of death, uh, where the soul departs, so forth and so on. Well, you can't have that with hyper All the bodies of all the dead did not rise from the dust of the earth in AD 70. Now, there are some who argue that there was a physical resurrection that happened for some people back in 70 AD. It just doesn't happen for everyone. Well, that flat out contradicts the Bible. You can't have it for some believers and not for others. And so if you're really going to take this theory... Of hyperpreterism seriously, you have to redefine a resurrection in some way in order to make it fit what happened, supposedly in 70 A.D. So, what is the general idea of resurrection within hyperpreterism? And I say general because hyperpreterists are all over the place. At one time, I must have counted six or seven different views of resurrection. But basically, it's this: this is what you most, this is usually what you commonly find. They argue that prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When a person died, whether they were a believer or not, their body would return to the dust, never to be seen from or heard from ever again. That's it. The body's done. It's over. The soul would depart to some otherworldly place, an underworld of sorts, where the soul would be held in prison, as it were, until the resurrection. And this place is what is believed to be referred to in the Bible by the Hebrew word sheol, In the Greek word, Hades. When Jesus died, it is taught by these folks that his soul went to this place called Hades. And there he may have possibly shared the good news to the departed spirits. And then after three days, Jesus leaves Hades, and he was the first and only person to do so. He then reunites with his body, which had been laid in the tomb for three days, and then physically manifests himself to people on earth merely as a sign. That he had conquered Hades. And it's very important to catch this. You know, hyperpreterists, or at least most of the ones I knew, they do not deny that Jesus' dead body came back to life on the third day. But the only point of that was so that Christ can show himself to the disciples and others as a sign that his soul departed from Hades because otherwise they wouldn't have known that he left Hades. Now keep in mind, we're talking about souls, and we're talking about a place, Hades, that's in another dimension. We on this earth can't see it. And so Jesus could have, if he wanted, departed from Hades and went straight to heaven. But if he had done that, how would those who are alive on the earth, how would they would have known that he had done that? They wouldn't, because it's all in this invisible realm dimension. So the whole point of the resurrection of Christ, according to hyperpreterism, was merely for Jesus to reveal himself to them so that he could say, Hey, it's me, I got out of Hades, uh, and now I'm going to ascend to the Father in heaven. That was basically the only point. So much so that according to many, like Don Preston, for example, is a prime example of this, So much so was that the only point that when Jesus ascended into heavens there in Acts, Don Preston argues that Jesus ditched his body at that point forever. I mean, why would he need it? The only purpose for it between the time of his death and the time of his ascension was so that he could manifest himself to the disciples to prove that he got out of Hades. It was just a sign, nothing else. Uh, So what happens later in AD 70? Well, Jesus goes and gets all those souls of the dead out of Hades, judges them, and then sends the souls of the righteous to heaven and sends the souls of the unrighteous to the lake of fire. And that is what they call, quote, the resurrection of the dead. The souls of all who were dead up to that time were raised up out of Hades. And so for the hyper what happens after eighty seventy? Well, if you're a believer and you die, your soul goes straight to heaven. And if you're an unbeliever, your soul goes straight to the lake of fire. Hades, as a holding place, is no longer in the picture post-70 AD. And this fleshly, earthly body is discarded forever. There's no point in it anymore. And just by by way of note, uh, Gary DeMar has recently revealed that he holds to something, something essentially. That, I mean, I don't know what Gary does with uh, pre-incarnation saints and all that, but he has said that when you die you immediately go to heaven, and that's when you get your quote-unquote spiritual body. And this body that you had in your flesh is is no more to be seen. It will no longer exist, and who cares about it? And so, um, again, this this fleshly, earthly body is just discarded forever. There's no point in it anymore. I mean, you're in heaven, right? You made it. So why in the world would you would you want your body back? What's the point of having it? And that, in a nutshell, is the general idea of resurrection within hyperpreterism. To be raised, which is essentially what the word resurrection means, is for the soul to be raised to heaven. And there was a general resurrection in the first century in which all of the souls of those who had died up to that point from the creation of man were raised out of this underworld. And there is a continual resurrection even now when the soul of a person departs his body in death and then goes to heaven. Now, that doesn't seem too bad, does it? I mean, historic Christianity teaches that when a righteous person dies, their soul departs and goes to heaven now. So, you know, isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we're all looking for? Isn't that where we want to be? And it's like, okay, so we don't get our bodies back. What's the big deal? I mean, what good is a fleshly, earthly body going to be in heaven anyways? It seems like it, it, would, it would restrict us. And, oh, by the way, we're in heaven already, right? <laughs> we made it. Why in the world... Do we need to drag that old body, that old flesh, into this? What's the point? I'm here, I made it, what's the point? And, you know, so it's argued, you know, are we really to believe that Father Abraham is in heaven right now, thinking, you know, being in heaven is great and all, but I really wish I had my whole body back right now. So, you know, it just seems silly, right? And, and don't think for a moment that this mentality is unique to hyper-preterist. Um... After I left hyperpreterism, preterism I kind of visited a few churches. Um, I, I have met evangelical after evangelical, Baptists, Presbyterians, you name it, who have said things like, well, that's what I believe. I believe that when we die, we go straight to heaven. And then at that point, I don't really care what happens to my body. Or I've heard things like, oh, I believe in the resurrection of our bodies, but it's just not as crucial as other doctrines. You know, you can take it or leave it. And so that's where I was at back in 2001. Apparently the idea that our bodies, our flesh, needed to be raised and transformed wasn't a big deal to me, which is why I was able to entertain hyper and then eventually do away with that understanding altogether. But now I'm just the opposite. I'm the exact opposite. Now I will say to hyper or anybody that you not only... Uh, deny the doctrine of resurrection by your redefinition, but in your denial, you have actually placed yourself outside of the Christian faith, and you're teaching a false gospel. And, you know, this not only gets the hyper prayers worked up, but it even gets many non-hyper prayers evangelicals worked up, because they'll say to me, well, how can you say that? How can you call these people heretics? You know, they believe in Jesus. They're nice people. Heck, they even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, so they don't believe that our bodies are going to be raised. Well, I don't agree with that, but is it that big of a deal? I mean, we all end up in heaven, right? So how can you place so much emphasis on the body? Well, that gets me to the heart of all of this. The reason I place the emphasis on the body that I do is because Paul does so in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says something quite interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. And here's what he says. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I say that this statement from Paul is quite interesting because as a hyperpreterist, I would actually quote this verse, this very verse, and argue that the traditional understanding of resurrection of bodies cannot make sense of this verse. How so? Again, put yourself in the mindset of a hyper-preterist. The essential meaning of resurrection, according to them, is the soul being raised to heaven. And so if there were uh, some at Corinth who were denying that, perhaps suggesting that the soul would just stay in Hades forever or the soul would die along with the body, like, you know, something like annihilation, then it seems like Paul's statement here would make sense. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Because when we die, we're not going to heaven. So we should be pitied. But the question is, how does that statement make sense in the traditional view? Because as we have already noted, in the traditional Christian view, in the standard orthodox view that's been universally taught for 2,000 plus years, when a believer dies, their soul goes to heaven. And then there they await the resurrection of their body. But if that resurrection of the body is never going to happen, which is what some in Corinth were arguing, why would Paul then say that we are of all people most to be pitied? Why would we be pitied? Right? We're in heaven. It's like, okay, so we're not going to get our flesh bodies back. Who cares? We're in heaven. Why would you pity anyone who's in heaven just because they don't get their body back? So can you see how we would argue this? Can you see how one would take verses like these and use them? I mean, if you're going to take the traditional Christian understanding of 1 Corinthians 15... It would seem as though Paul is arguing here that if our earthly bodies are not resurrected and transformed, then every single bit of our Christian faith is useless and worthless. It's as if Paul is saying, if our bodies are not raised, then you don't get any of it. It's as if Paul is arguing that with respect to the resurrection of the body, it's either all or nothing. If you remove this doctrine, you have nothing. Well, I'm here to tell you right now that is exactly... Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. is why we make such a big deal of it. That is exactly what he's arguing. That's why I said earlier what I did regarding this notion, as we heard from the Got Questions website, that, well, eschatology is important, but it's not as crucial as other doctrines. Well, that's not what Paul says here regarding the resurrection of the body. Paul says if our bodies are not raised then you might as well stop going to church. You might as well stop calling yourself a Christian. You might as well just chunk your Bible out the window. Your faith is is in vain. You're living a lie. You're living a delusion. You're still in your sins. Listen to Paul just prior to verse 19. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be uh, misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. Now, let me ask you, does this sound like Paul has this attitude of, well, you know, we can take it or leave it? (laughs) No, emphatically not. Whatever he means by resurrection, he's made it an essential doctrine to the gospel. Paul says that if the dead are not raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're all a bunch of liars. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have died have perished. And even we who are still alive are of all people most to be pitied. Now, how? Why? Why does Paul make the resurrection of the body an absolute and necessary essential to the Christian faith? Well, there's two ways I think you can argue it here in this immediate context. The first thing we can point out is the logical relationship that Paul makes between the resurrection of Christ... With the resurrection of the dead in general. Notice that in verses 12 through 19, Paul's argument against these deniers was to establish a logical, thus necessarily implied, relationship between, quote, the resurrection of the dead, unquote, with the, quote, resurrection of Christ, unquote. There is a logical relationship between these two beliefs which constitutes the force of Paul's argument. Paul says in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, notice the argument, if then, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he says in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, see it? For if, if the dead are not raised, for not even Christ has been raised. These are logical arguments that Paul... Is making here if we were to convert Paul's words to the language of logical forms Paul is essentially arguing in verses 13 and 16 that if it is true that no a is B then it cannot be true that some a is B because some a is B cannot be deduced from no a is B all right now let me put that in simpler terms if a person is claiming that no one can rise from the dead, he is claiming that the resurrection of the dead is universally impossible. No one can do it. There are no exceptions. But if that is true, then obviously it cannot be true at the same time that a particular person can rise from the dead. Because now you're making the exception and contradiction yourself. Either no one can do it universally or some can But it can't be both. And the flip side to it is this. If it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, which these deniers accepted, it is then false to say that no one can rise from the dead. And so there's this logical relationship that exists between the general resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. But I think there's more to this relationship than just a logical necessity. Now, why do I say that? Because Paul goes on to argue that if Christ did not raise, then your faith is in vain. And again, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, how can that be? I mean, if the purpose of resurrection was merely to be a sign, as hyper argue, if it was merely a way for Jesus to show himself to the disciples so that they could know, hey, I got out of Hades, how would your faith... And your salvation from sins rests merely in a sign. All right, let me phrase it this way Suppose Jesus didn't raise his body as a sign. Suppose that when he left Hades, he just went straight to heaven and didn't bother to signify to the people on earth that he had made that move. Would that affect your salvation? Would that have kept you in your sins? I would think that if his resurrection were merely a sign then the answer would be no it doesn't have any effect sure it may have left the disciples a little concerned and confused for a little while you know perhaps they would have gone back through the scriptures and eventually figured it out and thought hey i don't think jesus stayed down there in hades but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have affected their salvation they just simply would have been, you know, puzzled as to where, where, you know, well, you know, they would have been thinking, well, I guess he went to heaven, but he didn't, he didn't signify it to us. But, you know, we'll just assume that's where he went, but he didn't, he didn't prove it, he didn't show it to us. That wouldn't affect your salvation. That wouldn't keep you in your sins. And yet that's not Paul's argument. Paul emphatically states that if Jesus had not risen from the tomb... Your faith is worthless, and there is no salvation for you or for anybody. But well, how can Paul say that? Well, I'll tell you why he said it. Because the resurrection of Christ was more than just a sign. In fact, I would argue that making all those appearances to people that he did prior to ascending, that wasn't even the point of his resurrection. You see, the whole premise that his body resurrection was just merely a sign is completely false. And it is dangerously false. It's, a, it's the type of false where you deny the gospel. All right? There is something more to Jesus' resurrection than it being just a mere sign. And there's something deeper to his resurrection as it relates to our resurrection than just a logical relationship. So, what is that something deeper? Well, I think Paul answers that question in what follows... In verse 19 or what follows verse 19 he says verse 20 but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I think the key word here is in that word first fruits of verse 20. And what that implies is Paul lays it out for us in verses 21 and 22. So what can be gleaned from this statement, uh, from from this term, firstfruits? Well, I guess the first thing we need to ask is what is a firstfruit? Well, simply put, when you're growing something in the field, like strawberries, there's some time that has to lapse for that crop to grow. But all of your plants don't ripen all at once at a set time. The first fruits are those that ripen earliest. And so when you go and pick berries, some of the berries may be ready to go while others are not quite ready yet. Well, Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, it means this there is, according to the prophets, a harvest that is going to come at the end of time. That harvest being the gathering up of all people for final judgment, which includes the resurrection of our bodies. Now, that harvest has not come yet, obviously, but, and here's the key, it has been inaugurated in the person of Christ with his resurrection. All right, so what we see in the resurrection of Christ is exactly what we're going to see in the general resurrection. At the end of the age. Now let that sink in for a moment. What I'm saying here is the the future end, the eschaton, has already dawned on us in the past with the resurrection of Christ. And this is exactly why I think we find some of the language that we do in the New Testament, like Peter saying, the end of all things is at hand. And in Hebrews, it says, in these last days. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that it was on them that the end of the ages has come. This would also explain verses like these, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul, what do you mean we are a new creation? The new creation hasn't come yet. But f- f- friends, in a sense, it has. The eschaton has been inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ with his resurrection. That is, the future has stepped back into the past and has revealed itself. When you think about it, it's just its amazing. When you consider the resurrection of Christ, you're actually looking into the future now. But it's even more than that. Notice Paul says, if we are a, or excuse me, he says, we are a new creation if, if, what? We are, what? In Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is a very popular one with Paul, and it says a ton. And I think he says it uh, here because it's a key to his theology. There is a union that exists between Christ and his people such a union that whatever is said to happen of Christ is said to happen to his people. And I believe that is the other significance to the term first fruit in First Corinthians 15. It not only speaks of time, but also of our union with Christ. We are in union with him, and as he, uh, and he was the first fruit. And so what follows in our resurrection will be exactly what occurred with him as the first fruit. And this is exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You know, turn to Romans 5. And what do you find in Romans 5? You find that Adam was more than just an individual. God had made him a federal representative of man, such that when he sinned and brought death to himself, he didn't just bring it to himself. He brought it to all uh, with whom he was united with. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Now, notice the contrast with Christ. Christ is the new Adam. Christ is the federal head of this new creation, this new race. And so when Christ obeys, that is not sin like the first man did, and he's made alive resurrection he's not only doing this for himself but he's doing this for all who are in union with him all right listen to it again first corinthians 15 uh, starting in verse 20 but if in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. This is Paul in Romans 5. Uh, Romans 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's disobedience er, on, let me let me, <laughs> let me say this right. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, make no mistake about it. This is resurrection talk here in Romans 5. And it's speaking about our union with Christ. Resurrection here is the eternal life that is being spoken of here. This is the language of Romans 8 as well. Listen to Romans 8, starting in verse 12. "'So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live.'" something John Murray wrote on this text that I think states it very nicely. He says, this verse, verse 17, this verse obviously states the inference drawn from the fact of sonship, respecting the glory that awaits the people of God and is to be uh, related to verse 14. There, the fact of sonship was adduced as the guarantee of eternal life. Here, this is expanded, and the life that awaits the people of God is defined, quote, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. See for reference Galatians 4, 7, where the same logical sequence is expressed even more succinctly. Heirs of God can involve nothing less than that the sons of God are heirs of the inheritance which God himself has laid up for them. But it is difficult to suppress the richer and deeper thought that God himself is the inheritance of his children. Support is given to this notion when we consider that they are joint heirs with Christ. The reward of Christ was preeminently that he was glorified with the Father and the Lord was the portion of his inheritance see for example John 17:5 Psalm 16:5. Joint heirs with Christ means that the children of God enter in jointly with Christ into the possession of the inheritance which was bestowed upon him. This is the aspect from which union and communion with Christ, which the Apostle had emphasized in other connections in earlier portions of this epistle, are to be viewed in the state of glory. Just as Christ in his sufferings, death, and resurrection cannot be contemplated apart from those on whose behalf he suffered, died, and rose again, so in the glory bestowed upon him as the reward of his finished work, he cannot be contemplated apart from them. And they, in the state of glory, cannot be contemplated apart from him. Therefore, the glory of their inheritance can be none other than the glory which is Christ in the reward of his exaltation. This is expressly stated in the final clause of the verse, quote, that we may be also glorified with him. It is well to be reminded that this is what Jesus prayed for on behalf of his own when he prayed in John uh, 17.24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Joint heirs with Christ is not a loftier conception than heirs of God, but it gives concrete expression and elucidation to what is involved in being heirs of God. If so so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him, is the condition upon which the attainment of the inheritance is contingent. See for reference verse 9. There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is sharing in his sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. It could not have been otherwise in terms of his messianic undertaking and design. The same order applies to those who are heirs with him. It is not only, however, that they must suffer and then enter glory. It is more than a parallelism of order. It needs to be noted that they suffer with him. And this joint participation is emphasized in the case of suffering as it is in the case of glorification. This is both the reason for and the import of the emphasis which is placed in the New Testament, and particularly in Paul, upon the sufferings of the people of God as the sufferings of Christ. See, for example, Second Corinthians one five. Philippians 3.10, Colossians 1.24, 2 Timothy 2.11, 1 Peter 4.13. Believers do not contribute to the accomplishment of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Nowhere are their sufferings represented as having such a virtue or efficacy. The Lord laid his people's iniquities upon Christ alone, and in him alone did God reconcile the world to himself. Christ alone redeemed us by his blood. Nevertheless, there are other aspects from which the sufferings of the children of God are to be classified with the sufferings of Christ himself. They partake of the sufferings which which Christ endured, and they are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. See for uh, reference Colossians 1.24. Again, union and communion with Christ are the explanation and the validation of this participation. Unquote. I know, long quote, right? But I think Murray is right on the money. And think about it. What's the flip side to this? The flip side to it is, if you argue that we will not be raised because of our union with him, you're not only denying that of us, you're denying that of the Son, and if you're denying that of the son, then in terms of his messianic undertaking and design, in terms of his work of redemption, he failed. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we think very often of the death of Christ in these terms, but not in his glorification and resurrection. What he accomplished for us and on our behalf did not end at the cross. He was vindicated. He was resurrected. He was rewarded. He ascended bodily to receive his inheritance, and that was done not only for himself, but for us who are united to him. It's this union and communion with Christ that I believe Paul has in mind, and it's what prompted him to state that if you deny this of us, then you deny it of Christ. And when you deny it of Christ, there is no victory, there is no hope, there is no salvation. Notice what he says in verse 45. Thus it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so uh, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And what is that image? Verse 51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, Paul comes full circle here. If you deny our resurrection, then you have to deny of Christ because of our union with him. And if you deny it of him, your faith is in vain. But if Christ has risen, we will rise. And because we rise, our labor is not in vain. But notice the wording, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, union, your labor is not in vain. Union and communion with Christ, I believe, is a very important key here. So, that's why this doctrine is essential, that's why it's important, that's why it is a doctrine that you do not mess around with. And again, this is Paul talking here, The Saint Jason talking here, this is not some fuddy-duddy, old, reformed, cranky, confessionalist, hyper quote-unquote guy talking. This is Paul talking here. This is the importance and the absolute necessity that he places on the resurrection of the body.